Hey y'all, I'm Sandra Pham. And I'm Min Vu. Welcome back to Asian and Austin for our second episode. We're so excited for y'all to be joining us again on this journey that is our brand new podcast. Yeah, thank y'all so much for coming back and want to take a quick minute to thank the community for the support we've received so far. It has been awesome. You know, we've gotten such positive feedback. It makes Min and I really excited to, to continue on with the podcast. Yeah, it's been an interesting experience for me, Sandra, I don't know about you, but this one to many type of transmission of of our story, you know, of my story has been something that I knew was going to happen, but it's just been interesting to kind of get that feedback from friends of mine who may not know my story as much and to also just different community members. It's been really impactful and great to receive that feedback. But to be honest, I'm also like, oh, wow, they know so much about me now, you know, and, yeah. and we, were, we were on the radio. And so they, they're like people just listening in their cars about our stories. I don't know. What about you? How's the reception been for you? Yeah, I mean, you know how hard it is for me to be vulnerable, but I'm so glad my story and your story have been resonating with so many of our listeners. I so appreciate y'all. I've gotten so many messages and DMs to say, hey, you know, that part you talked about this or your experience around that, that is a similar experience that I've had. And so again, I I thank y'all for allowing us to be so vulnerable and sharing our personal stories. I know we've really enjoyed the experience so far. Ditto, ditto, ditto. So this month's episode, though, I'm really excited to be able to share the story behind what we're trying to do with this episode. You know, when Sandra and I were starting the podcast, we were doing a lot of research around even the term Asian American, what it meant, where it started, what ethnicities kind of fall under the Asian American umbrella. And knowing that that umbrella really encompasses so many different groups, kind of like we talked about last episode, South Asians, Southeast Asians, East Asians, and also just different pathways that Asian Americans are coming to the United States and how that can really inform their lived experience. So talking about different immigrant stories or refugee stories, even people who have been adopted and brought over to the States that way. So a lot of it felt kind of bigger than what we were able to wrap our head around. Would you agree, Sandra? Yeah, I'm so glad that we were able to uncover some of those things, right? Areas that we just go, we want to dig in and learn more about. Yeah. And so our special guest this month is Dr. Eric Tang. You know, about a year ago this time, I worked with him on an event and it was around the model minority myth. And he has such an interesting professional background, but I thought it would be a really good opportunity to also get to know him on a personal level and explore his relationship to his Asian American identity, but then also get into some of these questions around the Asian American term and the history behind that, but also the history of the first Asian Americans in Austin and what brought them here and and what was the context and history behind that as well. Sandra, I know you've got a little bit more about Dr. Tang that you can share with our listeners. Yeah, for many of y'all, you may be familiar with Dr. Eric Tang. He is very connected with the community, but a brief bio on Dr. Eric Tang. Dr. Tang is an associate professor of African and African diaspora studies and also is the director for the Center of Asian American Studies at UT Austin. He also is a published author of the book Unsettled, Cambodian Refugees in the NYC Hyper Ghetto. 
A former community organizer, Dr. Tang, has published several articles on race and urban social movements. Locally, Dr. Tang's research focuses on the past and present of racial segregation in Austin, Texas, paying particular attention to the gentrification-driven displacements of the city's long-standing African-American residents. He co-authored the report Outlier, The Case of Austin's Declining African-American Population, which revealed that Austin was the only major growing city in the United States to experience an absolute numerical decline in African-Americans. Clearly, he's done a lot, and we're very fortunate and grateful that he shared his time with us. And so, I don't know, Sandra, I think without further ado, let's just let's dive into our conversation with him. Hi, everybody. We are so excited to welcome Dr. Eric Tang in today's episode. Hi, Dr. Tang. Thank you so much for joining us. We are really honored and privileged to have you for this episode. Before we get into all of the fun stuff and really digging into the questions that Min and I have really started to look into when we were doing research for the podcast, we'd love to introduce you to our listeners. Could you share your background? We'd love to know your ethnicity, your pronouns, any other identities you'd like to share? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited for uh, this new podcast. I am Eric Tang. I was born and raised in Queens, New York. I go by he, him pronouns, and I've lived in Austin for about 13 years now. That's awesome. And what do you do for work? I am an associate professor of Black Studies at UT Austin, and I'm also the director of the Center for Asian American Studies at UT Austin. And then just to verbalize it out loud, what uh, ethnicities do you identify with? So I identify as Chinese American and Taiwanese American. Could you quickly share the story about your family, how they arrived to the U.S.? So like many Asian Americans, my family's Asian American story begins in the late 1960s following the passage of the 1965 Immigration Act. So prior to 1965, U.S. immigration policy towards Asians had largely been restrictive and exclusionary, beginning with Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, and one might even say the Page Act of 1875. So for close to 100 years, Asians have faced some form of ethnic and racial exclusion from the United States. But then in 65, those restrictions were lifted with the passage of a new immigration bill called the Hart-Celler Act. And my parents were granted entry, permanent residency, following that act. And they arrived in 1968 from Taiwan. And like many Asian immigrants of their generation, they were allowed in because they were educated, they were professionals, and that was who the United States prioritized for immigration. So even though it was less restrictive, it was still very selective. They immediately moved to a neighborhood in Queens, not far from the airport in which they landed. And that's a thing about immigrants. You'll notice that they tend to pick neighborhoods really close to the airports. It's as if just in case they need to head back, they're not too far from the port of entry. So we lived about a mile from John F. Kennedy Airport for a few years. 
until I was born. And from there, my parents tried Philadelphia, they tried Galveston, but they made their way back to Queens where I was born. I lived there my entire life until I went to college all the way over in Manhattan, which is basically a subway ride away from where I grew up. So I'm a born and bred New Yorker. I haven't lived anywhere but New York and Austin. So how did you make the move to Austin from New York? Well, I often joke that, so I was born and raised in Queens, went to college and grad school in Manhattan, worked as a community organizer in the refugee neighborhoods of the Bronx, wrote my dissertation, had my first kid in Brooklyn. So naturally, the next move was for me to move to Austin, like everyone else in the United States. But yeah, in some ways, it's true. I was part of like the coastal migration of, you know, people from California and New York who wanted to, to try Austin. But I came here for a couple of reasons. A, I did want something of a change of scenery. If, or if I didn't get out of New York by my early 30s, I would never have left. The second reason was I was drawn to Austin because UT Austin was building some really interesting programs in race and ethnic studies. And when I first came here, they were building a new Black Studies department called African and African Diaspora Studies. And I wanted to be part of something at the ground level. So I gave Austin a shot and I gave UT a shot and it, it, it paid off. It's been a very nice experience. What was it like growing up as an Asian American in Queens? Like, when did you first start becoming aware of your Asian American identity? Can you describe a memory that that might come up? So Queens was for me a very worldly place and at the same time, a very provincial place. Worldly in the sense that in my classrooms, I would have students from literally every corner of the globe. You would have, you know, children whose families had just fled the Iranian revolution. You'd have students in my class whose families had just immigrated from South Asia. You've had students in my class who were Chinese diasporic, but from South America. It was remarkable looking back. But as a child, I didn't think of it as remarkable. I thought of it as routine. Like this was yeah. just kind of how we lived. As somebody who studies race, ethnicity, migration today, I'm amazed about the composition of my classrooms growing up in Queens. You know, how absolutely worldly that situation was. But if I were to be honest with you about how I experienced it as a kid, it was just such and such from down the block. Their mom is from somewhere, you know. Oh, those folks, their parents don't speak English. should probably get away with more or less. You know, it depends, right? Yeah. So that's what we understood our world. And it was the environment I had until I was in my teens. And only then did I start kind of understanding, you know, that we were in a very specific demographic situation. And it was about that time that the notion of being a racialized subject became clear to me. You know, I don't know if I called myself an Asian American until my late teens, but in my early adolescence, I began to fully understand that I was non-white and that I was a racialized subject in a particular way. I don't know if there was any key moment that clarified it for me. I think it was just a kind of protracted apprenticeship, if you will, with the notion of becoming a racialized subject. Yeah, that term racialized subject, every time you say that, honestly, I'm getting chills. I've not heard it described that way, but 
I mean, that is the experience, a moment in which you realize, yeah, you're non-white slash you're a racialized subject. You talk about like your teenage years as kind of being that first entryway into acknowledging that experience. Are there key moments from your teenage years through your adulthood that you feel kind of shapes your relationship to your Asian American identity or how it's maybe evolved over time? I recall in high school being encouraged to try out for plays, for drama. And what was interesting about that is I had thought of myself as more of an athlete. I played, you know, the big sports, you know, high school football and basketball. And I was encouraged by teachers and other students to try, try acting, try, you know, theater. And I was like, okay, why not? Other people are saying, you might be good at it. Give it a shot. Well, I was auditioning for a play and I did really well. And everyone thought I had it in the bag. And they thought I had it in the bag because the other person who was auditioning for the role was bad. I mean, it was really that simple. And he got the part. And everybody knew why. That was the more embarrassing part, that everybody knew why. But no one really was going to say anything. And, you know, for years, I never talked about that because I thought it was kind of like almost beneath me, you know, to talk about getting denied a role in a high school play. But years later, I, I came to terms with how profoundly that shaped me and, and impacted me. The notion of being a racialized subject, as we've talked about, has to do with knowing that how you see yourself is not how a world structured by racial dominance, in particular white supremacy, sees you. And you have to manage both things. You have to manage how you know yourself, but you also are fully aware of how the world sees you in a way that is totally different. So W.E.B. Du Bois famously calls this double consciousness, right? It's that moment where you realize how you see yourself is one thing, but you're always already being seen another way by other people. You're figured in another way. And what Du Bois and others suggest is that once you learn that, you can't unlearn it. Once you know that, you never unknow it. And that is the condition of being a racialized subject. And I think that high school play experience, that theater experience, really impacted me because it solidified a lesson that no matter how I saw myself, I'm always having to contend with a world that sees me in a very distinct and almost contradistinctive way. And I'll never unknow that. And I think that's why that incident stuck with me for so long. Yeah. One, thank you for sharing that with us. I think that's a really powerful story. And I'm sorry that you had to experience that. I'm also curious, like, what was the play? I can't remember the name of the play. I know it was the, the romantic lead. Mm. And look where we're at now. We're, that's like all the rage these days. We'll see, right? <laughs> we'll see how long, <laughs> how, that, long how long that right. lasts. Yeah. As a follow-up, just recognizing that such pivotal moment, do you ever look back and wonder, had you gotten the part, would you have chosen a different career path? I don't know. Would I have pursued something else? I, I don't know. Well, what I do know is that there would have always been an attention to the racism that tethers itself to being Asian American in the arts here in the United States. You know, I could have 
also have decided to pursue it and done so with a critical eye towards racism in the arts. So I don't know if being denied this role for reasons that were clearly about race and gender turned me away from any long-term interest I had in theater or the arts. But what I will say is that it was very formative in that it taught me something about how my presence as an Asian American male made it not just difficult, but impossible to assimilate in the ways that I thought were available to me. So here's what I mean by that. There was this notion I had prior to that moment where I thought that it was only a matter of time before Asian Americans were accepted, were considered part of the mainstream. And it was only time that made the difference. We hadn't been here long enough. It was at that moment where I realized, no, there isn't just a question of time that's at stake here, or it's not, it's not, it doesn't pivot on time. There's something about being Asian, which qualitatively brings whiteness into existence. Does that make sense? There's something about the, the figure of the Asian that stands in contradistinction to whiteness. And so you're always going to be there and be available to be the opposite, not to be somebody who then gets to be part of. And that was a very profound lesson to learn as a 17-year-old. Because yeah. up until then, you think you're, you're going to experience what other people experience. But it's at that moment that you realize, no, you're destined for something else. And I think for the past 30 years, I've relearned that lesson in different ways, but in ways too that, that make community with other people, right? That are productive, that are engendering. I guess I have two questions. What inspired you to get into higher education and specifically around the subject areas that you're researching and teaching? And then with the move to Austin, as you've described, taking a chance on building something from the ground up at UT Austin, has your relationship to your Asian American identity, those lessons that you're talking about learning, how has Austin kind of shaped that as well? So I got into higher education because I loved the classes I took as a college student. And these were classes primarily in African-American studies and black studies. And I went to college and took these courses at a moment that intersected with the aftermath of the LA uprising of 1992, right? So really throughout the nineties, you know, we're dealing with these new racial questions that come out of that uprising. And one of the main questions is whether or not there's a persistent black Asian conflict. And so my education at NYU allowed me to explore that, it allowed me to approach those conversations in, in critical and, and deeper ways. That's what ultimately led me to pursue grad school and study race and ethnicity in the field of American studies. So these questions, again, that maybe are formative from my personal experience become part of my intellectual pursuit as well. And what I learned is that Black studies is a generative place from which to do Asian American studies. So your listeners might be like, what are you talking about? You either do Black studies or Asian American studies. Well, here's how I understand it. Black studies is a field of intellectual inquiry in the same way that sociology and anthropology are. It's, it's a body of knowledge, it has a method, it has a theory. And like Du Bois, who I spoke of 
a few moments ago, that's the theory, right? Well, like other theories in the humanities, it could be applied to studying a range of topics, including what it means to be an Asian racialized subject in the United States. And so the theories and methods I learned in Black studies, I was able to use in studying Asian Americans. And that's kind of what I do. I'm a Black studies professor who studies Asian Americans. So when I came to UC Austin, it was really interesting because it's a city that for the most part is about racially, at least white people, black people and Latinx folks, but primarily Mexican Americans. But here you have this Asian guy, he teaches black studies and people didn't know what to do with me. So in some ways it was kind of like interesting because I was enigmatic and I remain enigmatic to a lot of people. So in that sense, it's been different for sure, right? The fact that you can't really place me has kind of been my Austin experience. And I quite enjoy that. But yeah, so, so in some ways I'm taking this very East Coast experience and I'm mapping it onto a place where race happens differently. And so it isn't that a new set of challenges or obstacles or discrimination has defined my time here in Austin. It's more that I'm, again, enigmatic to folks and that I find to be more interesting than anything else. Yeah, I like that. And you said you do enjoy it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I feel you like know. there's a lot of playing around you can do there. Well, all right. So for instance, you know, you're at a holiday party and someone says, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I teach black studies. I'm an African-American studies professor. And they're like, wow, how, how did you get into that? And you know what they mean by that when they say, how did you get into that? Mm-hmm. And so like, I say to them, well, you know, my Asian parents were typical tiger parents and they demanded that I be the best black studies professor of Asian descent that anyone has ever seen before. So they would make these flashcards and they would say, who's this? And I'd be like, Malcolm X. And they're like, well, who's that? And I'd be like a five-year-old saying Martin Luther King. And they'd be like, really? <laughs> no, I'm totally messing with you. Yeah. So you can I do things that. like that. Yeah. Kind of yeah. twisting things on their head a little bit and making people yes. kind of pause and have to think twice. Right. Yeah. So Dr. Shane, the way that you put the double consciousness, I, I that resonated so much and was so clear. I'd love to um, know what does Asian American mean to you today? I think that to be Asian American, you need to be okay with being a little crazy. That madness might be an attendant part of the Asian American condition. And I'm not talking about clinical definitions of madness. What I'm talking about is this peculiar predicament that we find ourselves in, where on the one hand, you are given every message sometimes that you don't belong, that you are somehow always external to, if not opposite to, the mainstreams of American culture, you're perpetually foreign. And then on the other hand, or just as quickly, you are told that you are exemplary, (laughs) that you are a model of success, that this is exactly what liberalism intended, right? For people who work hard and aren't afraid of studying and spending their time working towards success, that they will be successful, that you are exemplary. 
And so this dual message, the one of exclusion and alterity, and at the same time being hailed as model and exemplary could drive you crazy. And I think all of us who identify as Asian American maybe feel that at some level. The poet Kathy Park Hong defines this as minor feelings in her 2019 book, Minor Feelings. And what she's describing is that small bit of madness that attends to the Asian American condition. So when I think of what Asian American means, I think of a group of people who are struggling through that contradiction, that paradox, and trying to make it something else, trying to make meaning of it, trying to do something with it. And that's a very difficult project to be engaged in. We'd like to think, as I did as a teenager, that in due time will be accepted. But see, this is a condition. It's what in philosophy they call ontological. It's not about something that changes over time. It's about something that persists as part of the fabric of a particular nation and its culture. So that to me is the meaning of, of Asian America. So forgive me if I'm being overly philosophical about it, but I do think when, I, when, that, when that term is used and people ask, well, what is it that unites Asian Americans? I have to say it's that little dose of madness that we all have to deal with, subsist in, make something of. So Dr. Tang, we talk about the term Asian American a lot. And as Sandra and I were kind of digging deeper into the history and really trying to understand too, the different ethnicities that fall under this umbrella, the way that the census talks about Asians, the way that other organizations talk about Asian Americans, I think we want to learn a little bit more about that and just get to the bottom of where this term came about and, and all that type of stuff. Sandra, I know you had a couple things that you were curious about too, right? Yeah, just getting a little bit of history about how the term came to be, how we use it today, and obviously kind of digging into, I think it's so broadly used, but what are, what are the ethnicities that do fall under that term? So Asian American is a concept, meaning that it's not an absolute, right? That it is something that as a useful idea can change over time. This doesn't mean that it could be anything. What it means is that at its base, it is a way of identifying a racial group within the United States. And by racial group, what I'm talking about is a group that categorized as incommensurably non-white. If you are Asian American by race, it means that you could never be white. If you are African American by race, it means that you could never be simultaneously white. If you are Latinx by race, and mind you, the census doesn't recognize Latinx folks as racial subjects, but then you could never be white, meaning that there is, again, an ontological question here. You can't be that which you are, that which you create through, through being its opposite. Does that make sense? So when we think of racial categories, we're thinking of categories that, that are not able to be white in the way that, say, a white ethnic is able to be white. You know, as a New Yorker, we had Italians, we had Irish, we had 
Polish folks who I grew up around, and they were Polish, Irish, and Italian by ethnicity, but they could become racially white, right? So a racial group designates those who cannot be that. So Asian American is used to designate the racial condition of a particular group of people. So this goes to your next question, which is, well, who falls under that? And again, as a concept, it is open, right? Um, we understand for the most part that it is those of Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, Filipino, South Asian, and that includes Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi descent to say the least, right? There are others that fall under that rubric. Among Southeast Asians there are Southeast Asian refugees, in addition to Vietnamese folks, it's Cambodians, Laotians, tribal ethnic groups like the Hmong. So those who are racialized in similar ways as Asian then would, by my interpretation, on my reading, be Asian American. Now, there are some who I just named, who or the people who belong to those ethnic groups that might actually not use the term. They might not see themselves as Asian American for reasons that are distinct to their world outlook. And, and I'm not one to debate with them about that. That's certainly something to take into consideration. But if you were to ask me who I think falls under the Asian American category, it would be these ethnic groups within the United States from the Asian, South Asian, East Asian, in some cases, Central Asian regions of the world who cannot be white. I'm interested to know, based on that definition that you've just shared with us, do you think the term Asian American has helped or hurt our community? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I guess I would have to know the context in which the potential for good and harm is being understood here, mm -hmm. right? Well, I think, yeah. I think if we think about understanding the term itself was, if I remember correctly, by Berkeley grad students, right, was maybe introduced into a more mainstream as a way to like uh, amass maybe political power or have a larger voice. So in that case, that was like maybe a, something to help with their fight for equality and civil rights and et cetera. And that could be potentially seen as a positive as a usage of that term. And then on the other side, I I'm curious if there are negative aspects that end up happening unintentionally that now we're all lumped together. Mm -hmm. Right. That's, it's a complicated and, and layered question. I'm going to try to hit it in a way that I hope is simple, but okay. The term emerges in the late 1960s as part of a broader racial justice movement that is multifaceted. So in that racial justice movement, you have non-white Americans, for lack of a better term, that are fighting for full equality under law. And I'm speaking specifically of African-Americans who are pushing for the federal government to render illegal statutory racism. That the notion that you could have laws that discriminate and don't equally protect non-whites, in particular African-Americans, should be unlawful. And the federal government does pass these laws in the form of civil rights acts. And to kind of underscore their full citizenship, 
black Americans define themselves as African-American, right? Like they're at once of African descent, but they are fully American, right? For reasons that are obvious, Asian-Americans want to make the same move. They are rendered perpetually foreign, not really American. They're always kind of conflated with being Chinese and Japanese foreigners. And so Asian-American is used and deployed in the late 1960s as a way of asserting the Americanness of Asian people in the United States. And this is an important move to make. It's an assertion that no, we're not foreigners, we're here and we demand equal rights here. And we've, have a, we've had a long history here. So although I began by saying that uh, the 1965 immigration laws brought my family over, there's also a part one to this story where Asians had been in the United States since uh, at least the mid to late 19th century. But for some who are in this racial justice movement, the claiming of an American identity, the assertion of one's Americanness could also be seen as an assimilationist move, a move of wanting to kind of buy into Americanness, including a history of racism, including a history of inequality, to buy into the American creed. And so you have more radical folks in the Asian American movement who say, yes, we're Asian American, but that doesn't mean we want to be American in ways that we find problematic. And so to go to your question, yes, on the one hand, it's important to assert the racial condition and the racial rights of Asians in the United States. And to the extent that Asian American does that and does it effectively, it can be politically deployed. But does it have also the potential to reinscribe forms of American nationalism, forms of, of assimilation that those who are fighting for racial justice find problematic? Absolutely. And yet there's this other layer of complication that you're identifying in your question, which is, are we also then lumping ourselves together, obscuring difference among ourselves in ways that are harmful? I study Southeast Asian refugees. In my writing, I talk about how they are consistently among the poorest and most jobless race or ethnic groups in the United States, not just Asian groups, but one of the poorest and most highly underemployed ethnic groups, period. Well, that all gets obscured when we don't disaggregate them from Asian American data. And we lump them all together with high earning, high achieving, overly educated Asians who are of say East Asian or South Asian extraction. So does that harm Southeast Asian refugees? That lumping together? Absolutely. So there's no real easy answer to this, right? We have to kind of take each situation for its particularity. Thank you for trying to distill that into <laughs> to simple terms, but I recognize kind of the complex nature of, of that term and what it means. And, and with that, how do you see the term evolving in the future? You know, it's yet to be seen how useful the term remains by future generations. I know that's not a very satisfying answer, but I think we're at an interesting moment. We're at the half century mark for Asian American as a concept. So if in the late 1960s, it's coined by student activists and other racial justice activists who are part of this broader kind of freedom movement and the civil rights movement. Well, around 2019 or so, let's say, was when we hit the 50 year mark, right? 
and then we'll give ourselves two extra years because of COVID. Okay. So, <laughs> so let's call 2022 the 50 year mark for Asian American being in, in usage. I think the next 50 years are going to be really interesting in terms of what else we do with this term. I think we're only halfway into what I would call the Asian American century. And I don't have any clear predictions for how it's going to go, but I'm excited to be part of as much of it as I possibly can. Okay. So now that we've talked about, you know, Asian American and kind of the history behind that term, I want to shift a little bit more locally to the history of Asian Americans here in Austin and how that kind of came to be. I think about seeing how different groups have come here to try to establish themselves and, you know, cement themselves here. I'm curious, just going back to the history of kind of the first Asian Americans and kind of the migration patterns into Austin, if you could share any context behind those patterns, what were some of the first ethnic groups under the Asian American umbrella to come to Austin? What kind of work were they doing? You know, what was driving them or what was kind of the historical context behind the first waves? I'll hit on that in a moment, but not before I ask your listeners whether they know who Francis Moreno and Joe Singh are. So who are Francis Moreno and Joe Singh? Well, Francis Moreno was a Mexican-American woman who married a Chinese migrant named Joe Singh, and they lived in East Austin. And Francis Moreno, who was by birth a U.S. citizen, you know, she's Mexican descent, but she's here born in Texas, loses her U.S. citizenship for marrying Joe Singh. Because at the time, U.S. law stated that if a U.S. citizen woman marries a foreign man, she will lose her citizenship by way of marriage. Well, why didn't Joe just become a citizen? Because federal law prevented him from becoming a citizen because he was Chinese. So naturalization wasn't extended to Chinese immigrants during the early 1930s. And this is when, uh, not the early, the early 1900s, when, when they were married. So he had no way of becoming a citizen. In fact, Chinese at the time were, because of the Chinese exclusion laws, excluded from even coming into the country, much less the right to naturalize. So Frances Moreno lost her U.S. citizenship for marrying Joe Singh. But Joe Singh was one of the first Chinese in Austin and the Singh family, one of the first Chinese families in Austin, or I guess Chinese Latina families in Austin. And the house that the family lived on, I believe on Willow Street in Austin is now historically designated. So something to share. Wow. No, yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's, I have chills again, just like learning about that. So, so the Singhs are unique in that there aren't too many Asian families in Austin throughout most of the 20th century. You have a few who do arrive and they establish themselves as small business owners. The Wongs, who are a long time Austin family and they have that optometry business in Austin. They are also a longstanding Austin family that has roots from the early part of the 20th century. So, so there are a few, but they are few and far between. That's pretty much how it works here in Austin until the 1960s with the opening of immigration laws, right? 
Um, and beginning in, in the um, 70s, really, because it takes time for this 1965 act to take effect, you see more uh, Chinese immigrant families moving to Austin as part of the new immigration. You see um, Indian families moving to Austin through the 70s and the 80s. A lot of it is an extension of what's happening in Houston with a lot of South Asian uh, migration to Houston. And then you see a large influx of Vietnamese Americans because of the refugee resettlement, which has its first phase in 1975 and then really picks up in 1980 following the 1980 Refugee Act, which brought approximately 1 million Vietnamese, Cambodian, and Laotian refugees to the United States. So the Vietnamese American community is really large here in Texas because Texas was one of the major resettlement states for, um, for those who, who came in 75 and then came again in 80. So that's really where you see what we would call today, you know, Asian American Austin take shape, right? That's the moment. It, it happens during the 70s, owing to both the 1965 Immigration Act and then the 1975 resettlement of Vietnamese refugees, right after the fall of Saigon, followed by the 1980 Refugee Act, which brings in other Southeast Asian refugees, those who had less social and, and economic capital. I'm curious to know, going back to the families that settled in Austin much earlier, you know, obviously Austin is, is much larger than it was um, years and years ago, but I'm curious to know, were they settling in certain areas? You know, we have what we call, you know, kind of a small tiny town in North Lamar, but were they settling in specific areas in Austin? And are you asking about the ones who came during the early part of the 20th century? Yeah, early parts, but also, yeah. So, so what we know as North Austin today, Breaker and the Chinatown shopping center, that was like all farmland, like until, from what I understand, relatively recently. So I don't know the history of the... Um, you know, the suburbanization of that part of Austin, I imagine it's, you know, post-war, right? Like mm -hmm. the second half of the 20th century. But like, say the Singh family, they were in East Austin, right? In this part of town, just east of the capital where the non-white community, particularly brown and black folks were segregated into. You know, there weren't enough Asians for there to be a segregated Asian neighborhood in Austin during the early to mid 20th century. But for reasons that are obvious, Joe Singh could only live in East Austin where there were other non-whites. Yeah, yeah, I'm curious with the, the master plan of Austin, I guess the Asian population wasn't even large enough for them to be considered as a factor of what they were trying to do in terms of segregating the city. Exactly. There weren't enough Asians for them to even think about designating an area. Yeah. yeah, it was just not like a uh, an idea that they had. For those who are interested in the house, it's known as the Paulson Singh House. And um, it has a historical designation. And that is the heart of East Austin and its Mexican-American historic neighborhood. Yeah, that's that is a, so interesting. I know. I'm like, I'm going to go visit that soon. <laughs> like, <laughs> We need to make a field trip. Like, um, we've just learned so, so much. Um, well, if I could give I, a shout, you know, like yeah. Aisha Khan at the Austin 
History Center. She's the Asian American archivist. Interview her. She'll break a lot of this down for you in a much more clear and precise way than I'm doing right now. Yeah, she's definitely on the list of Mm -hmm. people that we want to engage with for sure. You know, kind of shifting and looking forward here, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are. You know, we talk a lot about the changing landscape in Austin due to tech companies and uh, the shift in just population. How do you think that is going to affect the Asian American communities? Um, You know, a lot of marginalized communities are getting pushed out of Austin. Do you see that same effect on the Asian American community? That's a good question. The Asian American community in Austin, as I understand it, has not really concentrated in any particular neighborhoods. They've definitely concentrated in the north, right? The northern kind of reaches of the city limits. But I don't believe that we could say that there's one particular neighborhood in which you see um, a very large concentration of Asian Americans. And so if um, more middle, moderate income Asian families are feeling the effects of gentrification, they're not going to feel it in a way that is distinct from their non-Asian neighbors. Does that make sense? Because it's not as if they're living in these communities where that are um, homogeneously Asian. That's, I guess, the best way I could put it. So I think Asian Americans who are experiencing the higher cost of living and the pressures, economic pressures brought on by this intense real estate market are feeling it in ways that are, are generalized, are, are kind of that comport with the rest of the city. That, that's my initial kind of read of the residential situation. Um, with the exception of maybe newer refugees, right? Like Bhutanese refugees, you know, refugees who are, who are coming in and living in these apartment complexes that are lower income, right? That are the only affordable housing they can find. I think we're going to see more pressure on that housing staying affordable, and that could result in some displacement of newly arrived refugees. And in fact, I think it already has. So I would say that we have to pay some attention to what's happening with our refugee population. I wonder, though, what the impact of the real estate market will be on Asian small businesses, though. Will the businesses, say, in the Chinatown shopping center near Breaker and and Lamar, will they be priced out owing to gentrification or will they be pushed farther north? It's hard to say because it depends on who owns those properties. It depends on whether or not they will sell. Sometimes they won't despite economic pressures to do so. It depends on whether or not the higher income earners who move into that area actually find these businesses to be also attractive to to them, right? Do they want to shop at these Asian grocery stores and go to these restaurants? So it's hard to make a clear prediction about that. But I do wonder sometimes whether or not the margins are thin for these small Asian businesses. I think they're often taken for granted. There was a really interesting story. I forgot who did it, but it was about these Asian grocery stores that stayed open during the great freeze. 
mm-hmm. HEB and all the um, other large chains ran out of food or were closed and they kept people sustained, right? But part of that story was about how often they're taken for granted and, you know, the thin margins that they're working on. So, Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point that you bring up specifically naming the small businesses, because especially in that area, I mean, North Austin is growing in terms of like Apple campuses, the Austin FC stadium, like the domain, right? And that's, that's pretty close to that area. So it's only a matter of time until that starts encroaching into that Breaker North Lamar area that you're talking about. And it will be, yeah, something to keep an eye out on to see what happens. And it's like, if these rents go up, then, you know, so does the price of pho. And mm-hmm. we began this conversation by talking about how important the pho is. So like, that is, you know, a reality for a lot of these, for a lot of these businesses. And maybe, you know, folks who relied on them for years will just have to go farther north where the real estate is, is less expensive. Mm-hmm. I yeah, a hidden gem if you haven't been there is Pha Phong Lu, which they have increased their prices. I went there recently. It's on North Lamar and you can definitely see it's it's happening. Well, first of all, this has been a really informative, a lot of feelings. Even, you know, mm-hmm. I I wanted to give space to make sure that you were able to share everything that you wanted to share. But honestly, when I was just listening, I told Sandra this chills each time in terms of just learning new things about whether it's the Singh family in Austin or even hearing about your experience growing up has been really amazing to be able to hear. So thank you for spending this time with us and sharing all of that with us. We like to kind of close out our episodes a little bit light since we kind of dive into a little more heavier things, but it's going to be a quick rapid fire of a couple of things. And so just the first thing that comes to your, to your head when you hear the question Favorite Asian snack growing up? Milky candy. Favorite Asian restaurant in Austin? Sip pho. And favorite Austin pastime? Keanu Reeves. Austin pastime? Just Keanu Reeves? Love it. All right. First <laughs> thing that comes to, to your mind. Uh, I do. What's, uh, what's one of your favorite movies that you've seen recently? Oh, wow. So many good ones. Um, it's, it's right there. I was raving about it. Um, the answer is everything everywhere all at once (laughs) all at once yes because I got to go to the free screening put on by our good friends at the Asian American Film Festival and I was with my son and we had like the second row so our necks were messed up (laughs) and there is no greater talent than Michelle Yeoh yes there's nothing she can't do She's as evidenced by the movie. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Dr. Tang just wanted to echo men, just appreciate there's so many things that you touched on that men and I just want to dig in so much. And you have really opened our eyes to so much of the history, but just, yeah, the stories we want to thank you so much and do want to leave you space. Is there anything else you would like to share that you haven't been able to? I think we covered a lot of ground. Thank you guys. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, Sandra, that was, I feel, I still have chills from the stories and information that he was sharing with us, especially like learning even about the Moreno Singh family. 
I didn't know that. And that's just like, that's right here in our backyard. And there's a historical designation for that house. I mean, we're going to go and visit that now, right? Like we have to. Yeah. I mean, there are so many things that he brought up and topics and things that I want to explore on future episodes. Like double consciousness being one of them that I don't know if you ever listened to Oprah's Super Soul Sundays, but <laughs> I do. Yes. Sometimes we'll say like tweet, tweet, tweetable moment or like how about- she like makes them like repeat that thing again. And that's what I wanted to do with Dr. Tang. It's just like double consciousness, racialized subject, all of those terms that I wasn't as aware of and when he said it it was like oh dang this is uh this resonates yeah I'm thinking definitely our listeners as you hopefully when y'all have been listening to this have those same moments because there were so many tweetable moments so many follow-up questions I know you and I had we could easily spend hours and hours having conversations with him he was incredibly engaging I really loved the personal stories he was able to share not just obviously kind of on the academic level, some of the subjects and terms that you and I were able to learn, but just on a personal level, how funny and and great was his upbringing? Yeah, it, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Like learning about his experience going auditioning for that play was really hard in some ways to hear, but also just felt so relatable in, in kind of the worst way, but like affirming that, we're not alone in that experience, you know, and and hearing him share how that affected him was really, was really touching. Yeah, definitely really resonated with me personally. So yeah, it was incredibly vulnerable and, and really awesome. Yeah. I also hesitated to even like talk too much while he was speaking and, and interject because of how, you know, captivated, I guess, really, I was by everything that he was saying. Yeah, I mean, we were huge fans of him and his work before, but I think we can definitely say we're even better, bigger fans of his. We should start his fan club. <laughs> I'm If he doesn't already have one. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yes, there we've got in the description, we have a lot of uh, links to things that he mentioned, including double consciousness, more information about the uh, Sing Moreno house, and, and a bunch of other stuff as well that he he mentioned. And so definitely check that out. We're just thankful that y'all have spent another portion of your time and your day with us, um, exploring what it means to be Asian American and, and learning a little bit more about Austin's history uh, with our community. And we're excited also for our next episode, which we've already planned. Next episode will definitely be equally as exciting. I think we're going to touch on a lot of topics that we've uh, maybe hinted at before as well. Yeah, for sure. And even relevant to the things that he was talking about in this episode, I think that'll show up a little bit too in this next episode. Just also one more time, his experience and background in both African-American studies but also Asian American studies and how he navigates between both of those fields is really uh, inspiring and and really amazing. So Dr. Tang, you're doing great work. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you listeners for sticking with us and joining us on this journey. We're excited to bring you another episode next month. And as always, follow us on social media, subscribe to our podcast our handles on instagram and tiktok are at asian in atx 
And don't forget to also rate our episodes as well, right? Yes, that's what you do. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we'll see y'all next time. (laughs) We're still working on our sign-off, but bye. (laughs) Bye, y'all.